Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to take a moment to reflect, consider this last part of Colossians. Father, I pray for John as he comes and shares with us that you would bless him and bless us from the things he's learned and mined from the scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We typically don't do this at Redemption, <clears throat> but my name is Jim Ellis, one of the pastors. And, you know, when I was in seminary and college and those things, every once in a while, a student would come and the professors would say, this is my student and I really want to welcome him. Well, I have the opportunity, it struck me last night, that John Crawford was a student of mine when I taught at Arizona Christian University. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. So let me <laughs> introduce John Crawford to you, a good friend, great man of the word, and he's one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe. Yeah, good to see you all. Um, and thanks to uh, what I used to call him, Dr. Ellis, for uh, passing me so I could be with you guys this morning, <laughs> passing his classes so I could come preach uh, the word to you. So, um, no, my name's John. I'm coming from Redemption Tempe. My wife and I, we've been a part of the Redemption family for a long time, 13 years at Redemption Tempe. I've been a pastor there for uh, the last seven years. We've got uh, three boys, Wyatt, Jonah, and Silas, and so our lives are uh, crazy and chaotic and fun all at the same time with three boys running around, um, but it's great, and really just love what God is doing here, and even stories from John and Charles and Jim and your guys' leaders here that I love and respect, uh, just love hearing what God's doing in the midst of this community and your guys' congregation, so yeah, we get the great privilege of wrapping up the book of Colossians. We've been trekking through for the last number of weeks, this series, and so we're going to be finishing the book today. Well, how do you survive and thrive as a Christian when you're living in a hostile environment? There was a recent study done by the Barna Group on how non-Christians perceive Christians in America. And there were a variety of common perceptions in this study, but the top three things that this study showed was that non-Christians view Christians as narrow-minded, homophobic, and misogynistic. In addition to this, Barna has also done other studies that show and conclude that in the last 20 years in our country, the number of people who identify as practicing Christians has been cut in half. Fewer and fewer people are wanting to be associated with Christianity in our society. This is the cultural moment that we find ourselves living in. This is the environment that we are living in. It's growing increasingly hostile. We, sitting in this room as followers of Jesus, we are not the cool kids that people want to be around and hang around with anymore. And if we're honest, it can be difficult. It can be lonely. And it can even be scary for us to be followers of Jesus in this moment. And so how do you survive and thrive in the midst of this environment? As we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians today, Paul is very familiar with hostility. He's in prison as he's writing this letter. 
And he knows that the Colossian church are trying to live out their faith also in the midst of a hostile environment. So what does Paul tell them to do? As they ask the same question, how do you survive and thrive in the midst of hostility? Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 4, or if you have an app on your phone or device, go to Colossians 4. We're picking up in verse 2. As Paul writes, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The first thing that Paul says to do is pray. He says pray. Pray for gospel movement. Paul closes his letter to the Colossians in the same way that he opens it, with prayer. But this is not just generic prayer. Paul is fired up. He's fired up for prayer with a commitment to the gospel advancing, for the gospel to go forth for gospel movement. And so Paul says here in verse 3, he says, pray for us that the door would open. We want to pray for open doors for the gospel to go forth. And this is crazy because Paul is in chains. He's sitting in a prison cell at this moment as he pens this to the Colossians, but Paul is not telling the Colossians to pray for his circumstances to change. He isn't saying, hey, pray that I get out of this prison cell. He's not concerned about that. But what he says is pray that God would open a door for the gospel to advance. He's not talking about the prison door opening. He's talking about the door of people's hearts and minds that the gospel would be able to take root in people's lives. Paul knows the power of prayer. He knows that the only way in which salvation and transformation can happen is if God moves, is if God goes before him, that God has to move and he is the one that opens doors. It doesn't matter how winsome or what an amazing job Paul can do in articulating the gospel. If God doesn't open the door, salvation won't happen. And this is Paul's deepest desire. It's the thing that he's so wrapped up in is sharing Jesus with everyone. He's in prison and the prison guards are coming to faith. Other prisoners are coming to faith. Even throughout the New Testament and other places like in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison and there's an earthquake that breaks them free. The guard is about to kill himself and Paul says, no, 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 we're not going anywhere. We're staying and we're going to tell you about Jesus. Don't kill yourself. And the jailer gets converted. It's the thing that Paul wants. He wants everyone to know Jesus. And so as he writes this to the Colossians, even though the Colossians aren't in prison, they are still living in a hostile environment. Paul knows that they need to rely on the power of prayer in order to survive and thrive. And so he says in verse 2, he says, hey, be steadfast, continue steadfastly in prayer and being watchful in it. Steadfast. Another word for that means being devoted or devotion. He's saying be devoted to prayer. Be watchful in prayer in the midst of the hostility. Devotion means unwavering. Don't waver on prayer because the essence of prayer is being with Jesus. 
They need to rely on the presence of on the presence and power of Jesus through prayer because they are living in a culture with powerful cultural currents that will make them drift away from Jesus. That will make them compromise on their faithfulness to Jesus. They're facing pressure. And so Paul urges them, don't stop praying. Don't waver in it. Be devoted to prayer. Paul wants them to remember something. That in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hostility, they have the God of the universe on their side. And he wants them to remember that not only do they have the God of the universe on their side, but he hears the prayers of his people. Paul wants them to pray with anticipation, that they would anticipate that God would move because God is on the move, and they can expect him to move. And so when they pray, these are not just generic prayers. These are not bored prayers. These are prayers of expectation, that they can pray expectantly for God to move. Paul wants the Colossians to know that prayer is not a waste of their time. It's not inefficient and it's not unproductive, but it is the most efficient and effective thing that they can do because apart from God, they cannot do anything. The Spirit of God is the one who brings about the kingdom. The Spirit of God is the one who advances the kingdom as they pray for gospel movement. One of my Favorite quotes by a mentor of mine. He's a scholar. He was one of my professors in seminary. His name is Mike Goheen. He says this. He says, the kingdom comes as the spirit works in response to prayer. What he's saying is the way that the kingdom of God comes on earth, the way that the kingdom advances is through the spirit of God in response to our prayers. Prayer is powerful. But in our society today, we live in a moment where prayers are critiqued. In light of some of the recent national events, national tragedies that have happened, there's now been a movement, a pushback against thoughts and prayers. If you're on social media, you've seen it. There's people who are saying, hey, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. It's not good enough. We're tired of that. We want action. We want change. Enough with the thoughts and prayers. But behind that is an assumption that prayer doesn't do anything. And if I'm being generous and gracious to acknowledge there is some truth wrapped up in this critique and the pushback, right? That a lot of times people say, hey, my thoughts and prayers are with you. And they have no intention of ever praying, right? Maybe even some of us, right? We use prayer as a cop-out. I know I've done that before, even like, yeah, I'll pray, pray for you. And then it's, I never think about it again. And in our society, there's been a lot of people who have said, hey, thoughts and prayers are condolences, but then they never pray. And so I want to acknowledge the critique in that. But here's the problem with the critique of prayer. For us, the greatest resource that you and I have as the church is that we have God on our side. We have God on our side. The God who reigns in power over all of creation is on your side and he hears your prayers. If you are not taking advantage of prayer, you're missing out. My question for you this morning is, what are you praying for? 
as you pray, what are you praying for? Are you primarily praying for your circumstances to change when God is inviting you to pray for gospel movement, when God is inviting you to pray for open doors for the kingdom to advance? God is inviting you to pray that the gospel would move. And he's inviting you to pray with anticipation and pray with expectancy because he is on the move. But if you're here this morning and you're struggling to pray, or maybe there's even a season where you've just kind of been apathetic or you've kind of checked out on prayer, if that's you this morning, my question for you is do you think that you can do this on your own? Do you think that you can bring transformation by your own strength? There's been many historic movements in the history of our world. Things like the abolition of slavery, civil rights movement in our country, global revivals where tens of thousands of people have come to saving faith at once. In all of these historic movements around the globe, there is one thing in common. These things come after the people of God have devoted themselves to prayer. Where God's people have said, hey, we know that we cannot do this on our own. One thing is in common in all of these movements is that God's people have devoted themselves in prayer because they know that apart from the power of God showing up, they could never do it. The change and transformation couldn't happen, that it starts. All of these things were birthed out of prayer. Paul wants us to know that we survive and thrive through prayer. He continues in in verse 5 here. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Next thing Paul says is to act. To act. He says, don't just be prayerful, be people who act. How do you live among non-Christians? Paul says, outsiders. He's talking about non-Christians. This is the question at the forefront of the Colossians' mind. How do we live among these outsiders who don't believe what we believe? Because the Colossian church is a young church. It's made up of new believers. And so these new Christians now find themselves in the midst of hostility, and they're probably wondering, hey, how do I interact with my coworkers at the market? How do I interact with my friends when we go fishing? Or when we spend time with our neighbors, what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus? The interesting thing is, here in Colossians, this is one of the very few places in the entirety of Scripture that explicitly tells us how we are supposed to live and act towards non-Christians. So what do we do? Paul says, we walk. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. But what is wisdom? In our society today, we oftentimes think of it as getting, getting good advice from someone. Like, that's wisdom. Like, hey, I got some wisdom from someone. 
But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Wisdom, he's talking about Jesus. Walking in wisdom, he's talking about He's talking about Jesus and following the way of Jesus because Jesus is the very wisdom of God. And Paul is saying, hey, when you walk in wisdom, what I'm telling you to do is I'm telling you to follow the way of Jesus, embody the way of Jesus in the world. As you go about your daily lives, as you interact with others, walking in wisdom means following the way of Jesus in your daily life as you participate in what God is up to in the world. If you were to shorten it and simplify it. Simply put, walking in wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. And the reason why Paul is emphasizing this, of how we should act, walking in wisdom, following Jesus, the reason why this is crucial, Paul emphasizes this to the Colossians, is because he does not want the Colossians to give non-Christians any reason to criticize the lives of Christians. In the midst of hostility, he says, hey, live this way because I don't want you to give any non-Christians a reason to criticize the lives of Christians. I think we can relate to this, right? That the lives of Christians today in our society are constantly being criticized. And rightfully so. You see abuse in the church. You see scandals in the church. You see fallout with celebrity pastors. There are plenty of reasons why outsiders and non-Christians can criticize Christianity today. It's because people have failed to walk in wisdom. And Paul knows the danger of this. The danger is it makes our witness as the people of God far more difficult and complicated. And so he's saying, hey, be careful. Walk in wisdom. But he doesn't just say to walk. He also says talk. He says in verse 6 here, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, being able to answer each person. Paul's talking about relational evangelism. Conversations that are filled with grace. When he says be able to answer each person, what what Paul is implying is people are going to ask you questions. Because when you walk in wisdom, when you follow the way of Jesus, your life will be different. Your life will be unique, and it's going to make outsiders, non-Christians, curious. They're going to want to ask you questions about the life that you live. I don't know a single person who has ever been argued into Christianity. I don't know, a single person that's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. And Paul knows this. He knows that it is not a matter of your good theological argument, that it's not a matter of how well you can articulate your beliefs to somebody who's, who's a skeptic or who's a doubter. It's not that. Paul knows that the thing that compels people towards Jesus is the lives that we live. The lives lived are the things that get the watching world's attention. To say, there's something different about these people. I'm curious. It creates all kinds of categorical confusion for me. I'm curious about these people. Are your lives and actions to the watching world attractive? Are your lives and actions attractive to the watching world that already thinks that you are narrow-minded 
homophobic, misogynistic, judgmental, and the list goes on. Here's the thing. Living this way is very hard to do. It's very difficult. We need the Spirit of God to enable us and empower us to live this way. And this is the reason why Paul starts with prayer. It's the reason why Paul starts by saying, hey, be devoted to prayer. Because as we pray, our prayer would turn us towards Christ-like action. Reminds me of a woman named Tita. Tita lives in Guatemala. And a few years ago, I went with a team from Redemption Tempe down to Guatemala, and I had the great privilege of meeting her, spending time with her, learning from her. There's a picture on the screen, if you guys can make it out, the woman standing with the Bible in her hand, that is Tita. And she's uh, leading us on a prayer walk through uh, this neighborhood. And she's an amazing woman. And several years ago, Tita decided to begin to pray for a neighborhood called La Limonada. That's the neighborhood that we're in. Um, And she began to just enter into this neighborhood and pray and prayer walk, which doesn't sound really all that unique, okay? She decided to walk through a neighborhood and pray. But the neighborhood itself is what makes this a very unique thing. La Limonada is uh, the largest urban slum in all of Central America. It's one mile long by one mile wide. It's in the heart of Guatemala City. It's built down into a ravine. So actually, if you're driving through Guatemala City, you can't see it because it's built down into a a ravine. Um, At the bottom of the ravine is a river. Uh, La Limonada means lemonade. The reason why it's called lemonade is the river looks like lemonade because of all of the raw sewage that runs through the neighborhood. In this one mile by one mile uh, ravine where all of these neighborhood, where all these people live, uh, the neighborhoods look like this that are on the screen. Um, there's 150,000 people that live in this one mile by one mile radius. This has been historically the most dangerous neighborhood in the entire country of Guatemala. It's a very dangerous neighborhood. When Tita decided to start praying there, it was the most dangerous neighborhood, so much so that the faith community pulled out of the the neighborhood. Churches left. Law enforcement had left. There was no police, which means that in all of these territories, there's rival gangs. Gangs are running this. There's gun violence, unlike anything that we've ever seen or even experienced in America. Hundreds of murders a day. It's insane. And so Tita, though, felt like God was leading her to this neighborhood, to pray. And that's what she began to do. And as she prayer walked through the streets of La Luminata, she began to talk to people. She began to meet people. She began to have conversations with people. And these conversations began to turn into relationships where people knew her name. She knew their names. She was welcomed into their home, Guatemalan hospitality. Even though these people have very little and their homes look like this, they welcome you in. And she was able to meet family be able to pray with them, pray for them. And those relationships turn into conversations about what might it be like for this place to experience transformation, for this place to experience restoration and change, for La Limonada to be a place where, not, where people flee. It was interesting, in our, uh, in our trip down there, 
as we flew into Guatemala City, we were sitting next to a native Guatemalan, um, and I know only a little bit of Spanish, but one of the guys on our trip knows Spanish, so he was talking to this guy, and the guy's like, why, why are you guys going to Guatemala from, from America? And we were like, oh yeah, we're going down, um, and we're going to, he's like, where are you going? We said, oh, we're going to La Limonada, and his eyes lit up. He's like, you don't want to go there. And everybody in Guatemala, like, you stay away from this neighborhood. And we're like, oh no, we're, we're good, because we're going with Tita. You know, and like, if you're with Tita, you're all good because even the gang members respect her and know her and love her. And the, the fascinating thing was, she began to have these conversations. What would it look like for transformation? And she felt like God was really telling her and impressing on her the next generation. The transformation would happen with the next generation because the current generation, so many of them had been killed, so many of them were wrapped up in gangs, but the next generation... There was an opportunity, and so she began to dream and talk and plan about starting academies in La Limonada. Don't think academies, when you hear that, like public schools here. When you hear academy, the way that Tita is thinking of an academy, think about a public school, a doctor's office, a psychologist, a church, and a food pantry, all in one. Because these academies are holistic in nature to really care for the needs of kids holistically, spiritually. They're getting gospel-centered. They're learning all about Jesus. They're mentally, they've seen trauma. Their, their loved ones have been murdered in front of their faces. They've seen, when we talk to these kids and heard their stories, just all of them from a young age, they've seen brothers, uncles, dads just shot in front of them. And so psychologists in, this, in these academies to deal with the trauma then healthcare, like the nurses in the schools are like doctors. And so they're brushing kids' teeth when they get there. They're feeding these kids two meals a day. They send food home with these kids. It is amazing. And so through prayer, Tita acted, and now there are currently five academies in La Limonada. This is one of the classrooms in one of the academies that we were in, um, one of the teachers there. And the goal is in the next number of years that there would be 10 academies in La Limonada because there's 10 different districts that are all uh, set apart by gang zones that if you live in a district, you can't go to a different district. And so that is the goal. Tita. What she did, people thought she was crazy. Upon us even going down to learn from her, people thought we were crazy. What Tita did was crazy seemingly, but she prayed. And she didn't just pray, but she acted. And she followed the way of Jesus in a specific place, and the Spirit of God has used that to transform an entire community. That there are thousands of people now who know Jesus because of her and because of her ministry. That crime rates in La Limonada are the lowest that they've been in decades. That there's now actually been people and a part of this generation who have gone through the academies and they've graduated high school and they've been able to get jobs outside of the city so they don't have to join gangs. The power of prayer. When it's in tandem with action. But what about you? What about you in the West Valley of Phoenix living in Peoria? How can you be a people of action today? What is attractive to the watching world right now? As we talk about walking in wisdom, as it's following the way of Jesus, I think when we look at the life of Jesus, I think for us this morning, there are two ways of Jesus that you can embody in your daily life that are wildly attractive to the watching world right now, even in the midst of hostility. The first is the act of hospitality. 
we live in a culture of loneliness. America has been diagnosed as being in an epidemic of loneliness. People are lonelier now than they ever have been, and that was the diagnostic in 2019 before COVID hit and upended our world and forced us to be isolated and, in, and separated. And so now that has been multiplied. People are lonelier now than they ever have been. But when we look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, Jesus is the very hospitality of God. And we, as recipients of God's hospitality, can actually extend the hospitality of God towards those outsiders who have not yet experienced it. That there's an opportunity for us in this cultural moment. You don't even need a home to be hospitable. Oftentimes we think about hospitality in America as like hosting a Super Bowl party. Maybe, but Jesus didn't have a home. And when you look at Jesus, he was more often the guest than the host. Because hospitality biblically is not just welcoming people into your home, but it's intentionally making room to give of yourself and receive the other person. It's a way that people can be known in the midst of a culture of loneliness. But the second way of Jesus that we can embody today is the action of asking good questions. Because asking good questions leads to listening. And we live in a culture where everyone is talking. There's nonstop noise, but no one is listening. You can just go on social media right now in the midst of national events, and you can see no one is listening to each other. I was a hairdresser for 17 years. I cut hair and had my own salon. And one of the things that I heard repeatedly from people as they would come in and get their haircut was like, man, I don't even actually need a haircut today. I just needed somebody to listen to me. I've had multiple people at our church, clients throughout the years who actually said, hey, even though I don't have any mental health issues, anything that I necessarily need to go see a therapist to process through, I'm going to see a therapist because no one listens to me. My spouse doesn't listen to me. My friends don't listen to me. I can't say anything on social media. And so I'm going to see a therapist just because I need someone to listen to me. And when we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is a master listener. Throughout the gospels, he asks more than 300 questions because listening is a means of loving. Listening is a way for people to be known. And the, at the deepest root of everyone, for non-Christians, Everybody, whether you follow Jesus or not, everyone has an innate desire to be known and to be loved. And listening enables people to be known. It enables us to actually make space for people to belong in the midst of a culture of loneliness, in the midst of a time where nobody is listening to each other, we can actually listen well to embody the wisdom that is laid out in James even, that we would be people who would be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to become angry. But sadly, the church in America has not been known for being good listeners. And there's an opportunity for us to follow the way of Jesus that it's wildly attractive today. Paul says, we survive and thrive by being people of action. He continues on with final greetings in Colossians as he wraps up this letter. In verse 7, this is what Paul writes. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him 
to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he also greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And Jesus, not Christ, Jesus, who's also called Justice. Talk about a legit name. Name is Justice. Um, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, he greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, also have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say, Archippus, don't be a slacker. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting. From my own hand, remember my chains. Grace be to you. The last thing Paul says is that we are better together. As you follow Jesus, you are not alone. We are better together. This is a weird section of scripture. The final greetings to the Colossians. And if we're honest, this is kind of the section where if you're doing your Bible reading plan, you skip over it. You're kind of like, ah, yeah, Paul's going to say some stuff. Why? Well, we don't know any of these people. They got names that none of us can pronounce. Um, Super confusing. There's another guy named Jesus. We're like, wait, what? There's two Jesuses? What's going on here? Um, It's a section that we usually skip over. But it's interesting. I wonder, what do a slave, a prisoner, a doctor, and a woman who has a house church in her home have in common? This sounds like the weirdest cast for a movie ever. What do they have in common? Nothing in the eyes of the world. But they have Jesus in common. And they are better together. And that's why Paul includes this seemingly obscure final greeting to the Colossians. It's included here in Scripture because these are real people living in a real place. This is actually a real letter that was delivered. And so Paul knows that these Colossians, once again, they're a young church. These are new Christians. And Paul wants them to know that they are not alone as they live out their faith in the midst of hostility. When they're they're getting really confused or scared or lonely in the midst of a hostile environment, Paul wants them to know you're not alone. Because following Jesus is not easy. It's not going to be easy for them. And they need to be encouraged. And so Paul is encouraging them with all of these names listed. All of those names listed. These people live in other cities. These people are not even a part of their church. They're a part of other churches in other places. But these are the people that Paul wants to know. These people are with you. These people are behind you. These people are praying for you. These people are supporting you. And Paul knows that not only do the Colossians need encouragement, but he knows that every single Christian needs it as well. And it's interesting, Paul, at the end of this, in verse 16, he says, hey, 
uh, I know that not only you need to hear this, but he says, when you're done reading it to the Colossians, go read it to the Laodiceans as well, because that church community, they also need to be encouraged. But how do you think they would have felt when they received this letter? When they heard that Tychicus and Onesimus were traveling to come see them just to encourage him. When they heard that Epaphras had been laboring and working, praying for them. And Paul even says, hey, I bear witness to it. This guy's just been praying on your behalf. How do you think that would have made them feel? I can imagine how they might have felt. Because for me in this last year, this has been a really difficult year for me. It's been a difficult for, year for me due to health reasons. I've had a lot of weird health stuff go on, chronic health issues. I've had to have surgery this year. And honestly, it's been a really discouraging year. And at times, even really feeling depressed because of it. And in the midst of that discouragement and difficulty, one of my good friends, he's one of the, other, uh, one of the lead pastors at Redemption Tempe, his name is Jim Mullins, he secretly organized an entire group of people to be praying for me daily so that every day I would be being covered in prayer. I had no idea he was doing this. He organized it, got everybody together praying for me, and then he sent me the list of names. And he said, hey, I just want to let you know I've been working on something. I know that you've been in a rough season. And every day, here's all the people, various times, all this stuff that are praying for you. And I was blown away. Because it's one thing to know that people are praying for you. It's another thing when you feel people are praying for you. And on this list, once he gave me the list, people started reaching out. They were texting me, sending me text messages, not just I'm praying for you, but written out prayers with scripture, emails. People were handwriting, encouraging notes and mailing them to me. I didn't even know people did that anymore, um, but I guess it's a thing. And uh, with gift cards. And then one of, uh, one of the ladies from our church, she heard about the health stuff and she said, hey, I want to get, uh, we have a, a prayer ministry and a healing prayer team at Redemption Tempe. And she said, hey, I want to gather the, the healing prayer team and, and we want to just do like a prayer night and pray it over me for an hour for healing. And just, you talk about encouraging when you feel the prayers of God's people. In the midst of a season where I felt alone and discouraged, I experienced the presence of Jesus through his people. Church, we are in this together and we are better together. Don't try to follow Jesus on your own. Don't try to follow Jesus alone in the midst of hostility. You can't do it on your own. But you survive and thrive with others. Literally, you cannot faithfully follow Jesus by yourself. Because you can't live out all of the commands, the one another's in Scripture, if you are by yourself. It is not how God designed the church to be, and it's not how God designed the church to work. But the problem is we live in a society that is ruled by radical individualism that tends to make us think that we can live our lives apart from others, but you cannot faithfully be a Christian by yourself because Christianity is not a rogue operation between you and Jesus. Christianity is not a competition between you and other Christians. Christianity is not a rivalry between your church, Redemption Peoria, and another church. This thing called following Jesus, the life that we've been invited into by God's grace, we are in this thing together and we are better together. 
It's one of the things that Redemption Arizona, one church, 10 congregations that we say all the time is that we are better together. Paul says the way that we survive and thrive in the midst of hostility is that we are in it together, that we do it together. And as we gather together this morning, there's an invitation for us this morning. The invitation this morning is to Jesus, the one who empowers us to survive and thrive because he came to a hostile world. Jesus is the one who is praying for you. He's interceding for you on your behalf. Jesus is the one who acted and he moved towards you in hostility in the midst of your sin. He laid down his life for you. Jesus is the one who makes us better together. When in the eyes of the world, we in this room have nothing in common. But Jesus has united us through his body given and his blood shed so that we can be better together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. Lord, that we are better together. Lord, that you didn't invite us into this, that we have to go it alone. Jesus, we need each other. But Jesus, in the midst of hostility, in the midst of the environment that we find ourselves in, Lord, we need your spirit to enable us to be faithful. Lord, we want to survive and thrive, but we can't do it apart from you. And so, Lord, would you move us? Would you stir in us a deep reliance and dependence on prayer that we would be a prayerful people? And not just praying for our own circumstances, but praying for gospel movement, for your kingdom to advance because you are on the move, Jesus. That we wouldn't just end with prayer, but our prayer would lead us to Christ-like action, that we would be people who act and give the watching world a taste of your goodness and beauty. The way that we conduct our lives towards outsiders would be attractive, that people would ask questions, and that we could bear witness to the goodness of who you are, Jesus. And that we can't do it alone, but that we do this together. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a greater dependency on you. Lord, as we move into response, that we would respond to you rightly, Lord, because you are worthy. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection and the sending of your spirit. It's in your name. Amen.